Hello, everyone, and welcome to the week six edition of the Off the Charts Football Podcast, which is presented to you by FantasyInsiders.com. That is your source for daily fantasy sports content. Their slogan is Accuracy Matters, and that shows since they've won the Daily Fantasy Accuracy Competition for the last three seasons. If you're serious about DFS or want to become serious, check out FantasyInsiders.com for free educational content and premium membership. This is Scott Spratt as your host from Sports Info Solutions, joined as always by Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. It's, it seems like backup fever is sort of sweeping the nation in, in football, Aaron. I'm guessing that has you guys at Football Outsiders working overtime on getting your updated injury timelines for, for playoff projections and that sort of thing. Oh, I, I know that Scott Casmar is working crazy with the people who put the injury database together to make sure everything's in there. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we're trying to incorporate injuries into the playoff odds, but it's honestly something we've never really done in the past. So we're playing it by ear a little bit in the best way to incorporate that into the playoff odds for the teams that have the major quarterback injuries. I, I hope we can definitely work on that for the future to to do more with that, but obviously it makes a big difference. Uh, the question is, you don't know how much of a big difference it makes with certain quarterbacks because, for example, Buffalo. Tyrod Taylor right. was not projected to be very good going into the season. So when you look at what does Taylor mean versus what does E.J. Manuel mean, you have to ask yourself, you know, is Taylor the guy we think we've seen or is he less than that? Is he more like what he was last week against Tennessee where he wasn't as good? Uh, is Manuel perhaps, you know, usually a first-round pick after a couple years is going to improve, but he never played that well, but he didn't get much opportunity in his second season. There's, there's, just a, there's a lot of honestly subjective guessing involved. It's just a fact of life. Well, I'm guessing about half our audience has to worry about a backup quarterback come this Sunday. But for you and me today, Aaron, we're going to be talking about teams with healthy quarterbacks and who are some of the best teams in football. So that'll be a nice reprieve for people. Let's start over in New England and Arizona. So New England is number one in DVOA this year with a very impressive 55.9%. They're top 10 in all phases of DVOA. Arizona, meanwhile, is also in the top 10 in all phases and at 51.5% are clear number two in DVOA. Green Bay and Cincinnati are pretty close to them, and no other team in football is above 20%. I think we've talked about this in previous weeks. And if if there's anybody who is happy to not be talking about backup quarterbacks, it's Arizona Cardinals fans. <laughs> yeah, I think you're pretty right, which is why they smartly pulled Palmer later in that game. I mean, when you blow out every team, it makes it easy to keep your guy healthy, I guess. Um, but for the, for the point of this argument, the, the fact that they're so good, and they're both historically good, I think, in terms of DVOA through the first five weeks um, on footballoutsiders.com, you can check that out and see they're both ranked among the top 20 teams in DVO history through, through that period of time. But it got us thinking exactly what would happen if those two teams played each other. New England and Arizona don't play on the regular season schedule this season, um, and because they're in different conferences, would have to meet in the Super Bowl. But hey, we can pipe dream, right? So I wanted to talk to you, Aaron, and get your thoughts on what would happen if they played each other, specifically with some of the, the actual streaks and weaknesses of those team, um, teams involved. So why don't you get us started there? Well, I'll say this first, which is Arizona plays actually a very important role in the sort of uh, the undefeated derby that we have going on right now. I mean, I talked a lot last week, and I wrote at Football Outsiders in the last couple weeks about uh, the very high chances that we see for a team to go undefeated this year because six of them are already undefeated through five weeks. So it's like a one in six chance. 
And one of the things that's going on with these teams is that the undefeated teams tend to not play each other this year, which makes it more likely one of them actually could go undefeated. But Arizona being as good as the undefeated teams does throw a little bit of a wrench into that. So I should point out that Arizona is going to host both Cincinnati and Green Bay in the second half of the season. And so Arizona actually plays sort of an important role in why our odds for New England going perfect are so much higher than any other team. Because the other teams in that big top four group have to play Arizona, whereas <laughs> New England doesn't unless they make it to the Super Bowl. It just so happens that this year the NFC West plays the AFC North, so Cincinnati gets roped into that. The other thing I want to say about Arizona is, you know, we adjust for schedule, but early in the season, we do not use 100% of the strength of the opponent adjustments. And the reason for that is because we don't know exactly how good teams are this early in the season. We're still at the point where one or two games could create a fluky result, you know, that, uh, you know, we could have a fluke, you know, there's, there's fluky things like, frankly, the fact that Pittsburgh is fifth is based very heavily on that one win over San Francisco in week two. So when you when you look at the schedule, Arizona's had the easiest schedule in the league so far. Well, a Patriots schedule has been average. So New England and Arizona are right next to each other in their ratings, but if the opponent adjustments were higher at regular strength, Arizona would be a bit lower than New England. And I'll note that Arizona's schedule gets way harder after their week nine bye, the average DVOA of their first eight opponents is 13.6% below zero. The average DVOA of their last eight opponents is 6.4% above zero. So the Arizona team that we're seeing right now may not quite be the Arizona team that we see by the end of the year with our eyes at least because they're going to have to face a lot harder schedule. And I actually think so that the notion there that New England might be the stronger team because they've put up similar production against probably better competition. I think that matches up a little bit with some of the research that I was doing here, trying to figure out the specific matchups. So if you start a little bit on the fact that Arizona has allowed 17 sacks and pressures, that's tied for fourth fewest in the league. That's obviously very good. But New England, uh, they've allowed 21, or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Arizona has created, generated 17 sacks and pressures, tied for fourth fewest. So obviously they're not getting to the quarterback as much as you would expect. Meanwhile, New England has allowed 21 sacks and pressures, more middle of the pack, even accounting for their bye. But they just lost Nate Sauter to IR with a, a biceps injury. And so I was kind of curious what your thoughts are on whether that move, losing your left tackle, is that potentially devastating to New England and protecting Tom Brady? I mean, it's definitely a, 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 a problem for them. They do not want to go to Marcus Cannon. Marcus Cannon is not as good as Nate Solder. Nate Solder is an average NFL starting left tackle. But it's better to have an average starting left tackle than a below average one. And the Patriots, I know that the numbers from Sports Info Solutions have them allowing 21 sacks and pressures combined this year, which is about middle of the pack. So they are getting to the quarterback on defense better than they are protecting the quarterback on offense. And I know also, if you watch Brady, you know he goes down in a clump sometimes. Peyton Manning does the same thing now. Right, it's smart. Uh, it, it, it doesn't even fight it. Like, if it's there, if he can't throw the ball away, if it would be intentional grounding, he just forget it. Just goes down in a clump. So he actually might take more sacks than you would think otherwise because he 
he doesn't even so, there's sometimes he doesn't even seem to try to throw the ball away anymore. What, what, what's interesting, the Solder thing brings up the, the thing where they've been rotating their offensive linemen. I don't ever remember a team doing it on a regular basis. They, the Patriots have done it, this in the first week of the season the last couple of years where they rotate their offensive linemen kind of to keep everybody fresh and getting snaps, but then they generally settled on a line after that. Yeah. Most teams settle on five guys, and those are the five guys that they put out there unless there's an injury. But the Patriots haven't been doing that. They've been bringing Cannon in for a series at a time at left and right tackle. They've been bringing Josh Klein in and Shaq Mason and rotating those guys around. They have Ryan Wendell coming back from sickness, uh, so he'll start getting playing time. And I wondered why they were doing it. And part of the argument was to have guys ready in case of an injury, and here's an injury. So whether that helps have Cannon ready in case of an injury, I don't know. Other teams have gotten their guys plenty of snaps in practice to get them you know, ready to play in games in case of an injury. But I know that practices now have less contact, and some people have said that could be part of the reason why offensive lines have been struggling of late. And so whether this helps for the Patriots, we'll have to see. Yeah, a couple of specifics on that point. Actually, Greg Rosenthal at NFL.com wrote a pretty cool article pointing this out and referencing the Boston Herald as well, that the Pats didn't use the same offensive line for two consecutive series once during the Jaguars game. They did it for the first seven series versus the Steelers, and they've used three straight series with the same offensive line only once this season, and that was against the Bills. So, that, I mean, that's, it's crazy that they're rotating their line that much, but right now it looks really prescient. Yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, uh, the thing is, Solder was not the best in the world at his position, but he was definitely average to slightly above average. And Cannon has struggled. And I have a feeling it won't hurt the running game because the running game is driven so much by the scheme as much as it is the offensive line. But it's going to definitely mean something in pass protection. And it's going to be more of Michael Williams, who's the ex-offensive tackle, who's now the third tight end, and he's the blocking tight end for the Patriots. I would expect you're going to see more of him in there, more six lineman sets. We'll have to see if they do the same thing to the Colts this week that they did to the Colts last year, which was a lot of six lineman sets and a lot of running the ball down their throats. I wouldn't be surprised if what they do instead this year is a five lineman set with Shaq Mason, who's a sixth lineman, actually playing fullback. They've done that a lot. And I just want to point out that his name is Shaquille Olajuwon Mason. <laughs> so you know that he is 22 years old because <laughs> nobody over the age of 24 or under the age of 18 would have that name, Shaquille Olajuwon Mason. Yeah, I've noticed Shaq has become a pretty popular name. The Panthers have Shaq Thompson on defense as well. And there's Shaquille Barrett yep. for the Denver Broncos. Uh, so taking the opposite tact here, we have New England that you mentioned before. They've generated 29 sacks and pressures. That's tied for seventh most in the league despite the bye week. Green Bay is up ahead of the league at 38, six more than the competition. But that's sort of where New England is pacing for. It seems like they're one of the elite pressure-generating teams in the league. Meanwhile, Arizona has only allowed 18 pressures and sacks, one of the best offensive lines in the league. So the question is, who is going to break the trend there? One thing to note is that Arizona allowed nine of their 18 pressures last week versus Seattle. So you kind of get the feeling that the schedule might have influenced the fact that Arizona was having such an easy time protecting Palmer, and that might actually change going forward against the elite rushing teams like the Pats. I'm, I'm guessing you mean versus St. Louis, not versus Seattle. Uh, I did, yes. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to get Seattle and St. Louis confused <laughs> and anger all of our Seattle and St. Louis listeners. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that the Cardinals offensive line has it all over the Patriots' front seven, in running the ball. 
See that I think I think my guess is that pressure wise that it's a wash that that the good pressure protection that the Cardinals are getting this year will balance the good pressure that the the Patriots get. Uh, but when it comes to running the ball, the Cardinals have been far better, and that has really been a weakness for the Patriots' defense this year. The Cardinals are second in our adjusted line yards measure, and the Patriots' defense is 29th. Wow. So I would think that, I mean, it sounds crazy. Hey, Chris Johnson, Dave Johnson. But I think you're going to get the lots of Johnson. If this were the Super Bowl, you're going to see a lot of running the ball by the Cardinals because that is the weakness of the Patriots' defense. Yeah, that makes sense. Looking at it from the other side, though, what exactly could Arizona do to stop Rob Gronkowski? I mean, is it even possible? The, the one thing that crossed my mind was that they have the second-year strong safety, Deion Buchanan, who's pretty big and athletic for a strong safety. Maybe he could try to cover Gronk. Um, I'm not really sure if any of the linebackers have the coverage skills. Do you have any thoughts there? All right, here we go. You want to hear it? I here do. we go. Yes. Arizona is the number two defense in the league so far against opposing tight ends. Oh, that's excellent. Now, will that continue? I mean, you know, look, there's opposing tight ends, and then there's Gronk. Okay, I mean, the best tight end they faced all year is probably Marcellus Bennett, and he had a reasonably good game against them. Um, the, the only uh, reason that, that they did well against him in part was because they picked off a pass that was intended for him. Right. So... Uh, you know, I mean, there's tight ends and then there's Gronk. It's a different world right there. But there's no doubt that Arizona has, they play six defensive backs a ton of the time using Dion Buchanan as a linebacker in many ways. But they've got, they can use him. They've got Tyron Matthews. They've got Tony Jefferson. They've got all these guys. They can try to throw guys at Gronk. They could throw two guys at Gronk. I mean, they're actually set up really well. As much as anybody can be set up to stop Gronk, they're set up for it. Except they're also 27th in our ratings against, quote-unquote, other wide receivers. Now, how much of that is slot receivers? Uh, I'm not sure yet. That's something that we are charting, but I don't have the data on yet. But, the you know, if if what that means is that they're not doing very well against slot receivers, then ha-ha, there's a Patriot strength. So... Edelman, Danny Amendola, those short crossing routes, the little slot routes. You know, don't expect a big day from Keyshawn Martin if there's a Patriots Cardinals Super Bowl. Actually, don't expect any kind of day from Keyshawn Martin because when the Patriots play the Cardinals in the Super Bowl, if it were to happen, Brandon LaFell would be back by then. But don't expect a big day from him either. But the Cardinals have been excellent against tight ends and not that good against the slot receivers. Man, well, this has gotten me really excited for for this Super Bowl. So we'll have to yeah, see let's if, have it these, next week. if these teams can actually keep this up for the next few months. Uh, <laughs> let's move up the Pacific coastline, though, and talk about the the accidentally before mentioned Seattle uh, Seahawks. The Seahawks are two and three after losing a game to the Bengals last week. That was a bit of a heartbreaker, but they are actually still top ten in DVOA. So I wanted to talk to you about a few things here, Aaron. One. Have their playoff chances really been damaged a lot? Obviously, Arizona is undefeated and, and seemingly running away with that division, but there are the two wildcard spots. Is Seattle still in good shape there, or is it time for them to start being concerned, especially with their tough schedule going forward? Well, I mean, they're, they should be concerned, but they're still in it. I mean, the fact is that going 2-1 and one after the 0-2 start has certainly helped. Their playoff odds are better now by our playoff odds report than they were 
after they were 0-2, even though after they were 0-2, our playoff odds were still using mostly preseason projections. At that point, we had them at 42% to make the playoffs. Now we have them at 47% to make the playoffs. With more wins, there would obviously be a huge difference there. I mean, you know, if they were 3-2, and two, if they were 4-1, and one, they'd be up there with the top teams in the NFC, you know, 80% or so. They, sure. they probably would still be behind Arizona a little bit if they weren't playing as well as Arizona. But, you know, 3-2, and two, their playoff chances would be higher. The, you know, one of the things that hurts their playoff chances is what's going on in the NFC South because it looks very likely that one of the wild cards will come out of the NFC South and that leaves only one other wild card. But let's be honest, of all the other teams in the NFC, who do you like to win the wild card other than Seattle? I mean, that is, Seattle is the best team in the NFC that is not currently in first place. I think that they're a better, you know, in fact, uh, uh, there's no other team in the NFC other than, uh, other than Carolina. There's no team that has a winning record and is not in first place in their division. That's crazy. So Seattle was not that far behind. Everyone in the NFC seems to be two and three right now. Three teams in the NFC East are two and three. Chicago is two and three. Tampa Bay is two and three. St. Louis is two and three. And Minnesota is two and two. So how far behind is Seattle really? If they're the team we think they are, then they are the best of all of those teams, and they're frankly better than Carolina or Atlanta. Sorry, I know you're a Carolina fan, but... This is not news. What, are they favored by seven points? This, I mean, a two and three Six team and a half. Come on. <laughs> over an undefeated team. I know they're at home, but still. Um, Seattle is the best of those teams, and certainly they've been since Chancellor came back, right? Chancellor, uh, their DVOA, defensive DVOA in weeks one and two is 14%. That would be 27th in the league. Weeks three through five, it's negative 12.6%. That would be eighth in the league. So the defense has absolutely improved since Chancellor came back. I don't know if that's all Chancellor. It's probably not all Chancellor. Other players are playing better too. But, you know, their defense is back to being maybe not as stellar as years past, but pretty good. And their offense is surprisingly average. I know that the offensive line looks really bad pass blocking, but Seattle's offense is 14th in the league in DVOA, and they're number one in special teams. So this team has lost some close games against tough opponents. They're still pretty good, not as good, I don't think, as we thought they were before the season, but still pretty good. So, I mean, I actually think that 47% chance to make the playoffs is a little, uh, is a little low. I would think it would be a little bit higher than that, but it's almost assuredly going to be as a wild card. Sure. And if they beat the Panthers at home this week, then that's going to dramatically change things in their favor, I'm sure. Uh, before we move on to the third topic, let's let's again mention that the Off the Charts Football Podcast is brought to you by FantasyInsiders.com, your source for daily fantasy sports content. Fantasy Insiders believes that accuracy matters, and that shows that they are the back-to-back-to-back fantasy accuracy competition champions for the last three years. They're the Tom Amansky of, of fantasy accuracy competitions. If you're serious about DFS or want to become serious, go to FantasyInsiders.com, get that free educational content, and, free, and sign up for a premium membership. Thank you, Fred McGriff. Absolutely. He endorses that, I'm sure. So the, ter- the third topic today is, is along similar lines, Aaron, to the last topic we talked about. It's the New York Giants. They started the season with a couple of losses as well, some hard luck losses, but they're hanging around and actually are also a top 10 team in DVOA. Um, I know that they've had their share of injuries, but I, I think my question is, 
now that Dallas is, is has suffered from the, the Tony Romo injury, the Des Bryant injury, they seem to be falling apart. It seems like they're sort of in the driver's seat in the division, but are they actually a good team potentially? New York Giants, where our slogan is, we're not two and three. <laughs> They're three and two. It's better than two and three. <laughs> um, it's amazing how Dallas has fallen apart. I mean, they really haven't played that much worse than we would have expected with Whedon when uh, when Romo got hurt. Right, so we that's when we started to adjust the ratings for the playoff odds based on the idea that Whedon would play for half the season. And at that point, we had Dallas at like. The Dave rating, which combined projection with uh, with their performance so far, was 3%. And that projection incorporated the idea that Bryant would be out half the year and Whedon would be out half the year. Now their rating that incorporates more of how they've actually played is minus 5%. So that's a change, but it's not that much of a change. It's just that they really should have won one of these last three games if you know, if you looked at the odds going into these three games, you would have expected them to win one of the three. Probably not the one against New England, but one of the three, and then they'd be three and two, and they'd be in better shape. But they didn't win any of them. So even though they haven't played that much worse than we would have expected without Bryant and Romo, they're stuck. And so their playoff odds in week two, right? After week two, we had the Giants going to the playoffs 26% of the time and the Cowboys 56%. Now it's the Giants 64% and the Cowboys only 12%. That's dramatic. And I think the Giants are, are playing well. I mean, yeah, there's lots of injuries to their receivers. The offensive line has been surprisingly strong for them. It, it, you know, Eric Flowers has, some people thought he would be a disaster, and he hasn't been when healthy. Um, Jeff Schwartz has been really good at, at right guard. They're getting good interior line play. The defense has been better than expected, even without Jason Pierre-Paul, and apparently they feel they can hardly put DeMontre Moore on the field anymore because as soon as they put him on the field, you'll instantly run the ball for 30 yards directly at him. <laughs> but Kerry Wynn, right, George Selby, these guys have been pretty good. The secondary's got some good players in it, not safeties, but cornerbacks, although Mukamara's now hurt. They've had good special teams play. The Giants are like a kind of good team. The Giants have kind of been the team that Cincinnati was for the last three or four years. They look like the team that is totally built to win their division and go into the playoffs and lose in the first round because they're really like the ninth best team in the league. You know, it really is a shame what happened to Pierre Paul because the one piece that's really missing from that defense is a pass rush. They've only gotten 16 sacks and pressures. That's ahead of just Atlanta and Minnesota, Minnesota having already had a bye. So that's like the one thing on defense that they're really missing. But I think there are some additions on offense that kind of are, are sort of tipping the balance back and making them a pretty decent team. And I want to talk specifically about Shane Vereen. Because thinking about the the recent Giants teams under Eli Manning, I don't really remember them having a player quite like him and having a player with his type of versatility out of the backfield. So Vereen is flexed out wide um, 10 times this season. It's not among the leaders at the position. Deion Lewis on the Patriots has done it 48 times. Matt Forte, 35. Lance Dunbar, who's now out for the year, 29. And David Johnson, who we mentioned on the Cardinals earlier, 26. But it's often, and he's still catching a lot of those screen-type passes in the backfield. Is that a type of player that the Giants have ever had in your recollection? And, and how much of a difference do you think that's making for that offense? 
Well, if you think about it, Tiki Barber was one of those complete running backs who could play first and second down and run, but also do the receiving thing, and he was a really great receiver in his prime, but that was a while ago. I would love to see them splitting Vereen out more. I think a lot of those split outs were last week. They have not used him like that every week, right? So in weeks three and four, he had only four passes and one catch. It was week five. All the receivers get injured. They start using him a lot more, and that was a huge part of the comeback. Although part of that is, of course, you leave that stuff underneath open when you're worried about them going downfield. But, but, you know, I think they need to use him more like that, especially if Victor Cruz is still not back and if there's hamstring issues for Randall and Beckham. If those guys are going to need to get off the field and not be on the field for every play because they need to rest their hamstrings a little bit, splitting Vereen out is, I think, better than putting Jeremy Davis out there or whoever else they've got, you know, uh, uh, Dwayne Harris. And, I mean, you know, Dwayne Harris sort of becomes their number one receiver if there's no Beckham and Randall. I'd like to see more from Vereen. It, it's a kind of guy they have not had for a few years, but it does. it is a guy Giants fans should be familiar with because Tiki Barber was that kind of guy, especially earlier in his career when it was the thunder and lightning thing with Dane. He was much more specialized into, like, Vereen's role. You know, you, you brought up Odell Beckham as well, and I wanted to talk briefly about him just to get the sense from you whether we think that Beckham is, is having the kind of second season that answers the incredible rookie season he had last year. And just looking at some of his basic numbers, it seems like he's been fairly comparable so far. Last year, he had 14.3 yards per reception. This year, 13.8. Uh, targeted about the same amount this year, uh, 10.4 targets per game compared to 10.8. In your mind, has he been a similarly productive player and making him, therefore, probably one of the best wide receivers in the game? Yeah, the catch rate's been down a little bit, but I don't think that's him. I think that's on sort of the, you know, that they've had to force him the ball even a little bit more maybe than they did last year, depending on who else is is injured. And, you know, it's early yet, but I think that Beckham has shown that he's definitely a top receiver. He's 17th right now in uh, DYAR, which is our total staff for wide receiver, 28th in DVOA, which is not as good, certainly, as he was last year, especially considering that he missed a couple games at the beginning of the season last year, only played 11 games. But, you know, it's not terrible either. It's definitely understandable given the context of what's happened around him. And he's not Michael Clayton. I think he's shown that he is one of the top receivers in the league. And I think these numbers will go up a little bit as far as the rest of the year. They won't go up to where they were last year. That's not going to happen. What happened last year was an amazing, incredible season, and you don't have seasons like that every year. But he's he's really good, and he definitely seems to be the best of this amazing class of 2014. Well, that about does it for our show today. So I want to thank everyone that's made it this far and encourage you to subscribe at Off the Charts Football Podcast. You can check that out on iTunes. Also, check out footballoutsiders.com. Check out fantasyinsiders.com, our sponsor. And I hope everyone enjoys week six and all the great games that we have got coming up. We'll talk to you next week.